You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Why don't you stand with me as I open up in a word of prayer as we open up the word of God. Father, thank you for the immense privilege we have of gathering together to worship the God of the universe, our God and King. Lord, the world is upside down, but you are our rock and our refuge, a place that we run to, our source of encouragement and strength and hope. And Father, today as we open up your word, our simple desire is this. God, would you speak to us clearly through the ever-present word of God. Lord, as we come in here today, what we need more than anything else, more than, more than all of the rights that we think we are owed, more than all the privileges that we have, what we need more than anything, God, we need a fresh encounter with you, the living God. That's where our life is found. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for the assurance that you are with us. Thank you that although times change and things are different, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love you, God. As we open up your word now, Father, I pray that we push aside discouragements and distractions, all the things that we brought in here. And we simply yearn to hear from you. May our eyes be open. May our ears be pinned up. May our hearts be ready for what you have for us. For your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat if you are here. Welcome here today. Always a privilege and a pleasure to have a church service with you. And I I was going to say it's nice to see your smiling faces, but it's nice to see your smiling eyes behind your masks. I can tell you're smiling uh, back there. If you're at home today, I'm really glad you're with us as well. There's nothing better to do on a Sunday morning to gather with God's people and look at the Word of God and study the Word of God that God might uh, influence our souls and change us from the inside out. And so we're going to be this morning in the book of Micah. Hopefully you've been following along our sermon series, you know where Micah is, it's right after Jonah. And so it's really simple to follow this sermon series. You just go next book, next sermon. And so you can put your bookmarks in and follow along. We're going to be looking at the book of Micah. Uh, title of this is Promises Over Punishment. Promises over punishment. You probably got the idea already in the sermon series that, man, God comes with great punishment, and he does, but his promises always prevail over the punishment he brings onto his people. For to ask you what the book of Micah is about, probably most of you would say, we have no idea. Anyone with me? What's the book of Micah about? Anyone would say, I have no idea? Yeah, yeah, most of us, right? Because it's one of those little obscure books, but it's got a powerful message. And Micah, you probably know one verse out of the book of Micah. Probably one verse. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And this is what the verse is. It says this, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You know that verse? That's probably the only verse you know out of Micah. And we quote it often. And we think, man, this is such a great verse. We know Micah as an old school Robin Hood. He fought for the justice of people in the land of the day. But more than even justice, more than even a message of justice, here's what the book of Micah is about. It's about uh, the overarching theme is this. Who is like our God? 
is really pointing beyond the justice on this earth to the God of justice, the God who holds everything in the palm of his hands, the God who holds all judgment, and yet at the same time, he's not just a judging God, but he's a loving God, and really, who has that perfect balance, but God, who has the fullness and the rightness to judge and to, to give punishment, but also who at the same time has the fullness and capacity to love and give mercy at the exact same time, only one person, who is it? It's God, and so Micah, the overall theme is, who is like Yahweh? Who is comparable to God? And the obvious answer is, nobody. So many of us think of God as just a God of justice, and just an angry old cop who's looking to catch his speed and to throw the book at you and, and, and punish you. Yes, God does rightfully punish us for our misdeeds and, and, and for the things we do wrong, but that's not just God. He's not an angry cop. And some of us look at God as just the loving God. He's like the Cupid, the little arrow, like, just want to show the little love arrows at you. And yet, yet he does love, but yet, but yet the God that we serve in the Bible is a fullness of both, a righteous, moral, holy God who does put sin in its place, but also God who loves us. The greatest picture of that is Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross where God's wrath and God's love meet. And so Micah is really a gospel book pointing us to both. And it's really a picture of the complexity and the vastness and the dynamic reality of a God that we serve. And Micah uses vivid imagery and rich wordplay and ultimately shows us as we get lower the highest reality of who God is. So let me give you a background a little bit on the book of Micah as we get in here. Micah is seven chapters long, the perfect number, but it's written to an imperfect people. It's actually written to God's people, reminding them that God is the Lord who judges and who will even scatter his people for their transgressions and sins, but also one who is a faithful father, a shepherd king who gathers and protects and forgives. And so Micah prophesied or preached in this time much like our day and age today. Uh, Micah was preaching to a mixed up world. And again, he's preaching to God's people. So he's really preaching to the church or he's really preaching to us. World's upside down. Believers are a little bit upside down, but he's showing them an upright God. And Micah set up his pulpit at the time of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Those are the kings that were reigning during uh, Micah's uh, preaching time. And so uh, he actually preached between 740 and uh, 587 B.C., a period of 53 years. He preached on the heels of Hosea and Amos and served in Jerusalem alongside the superstar prophet Isaiah. And as he preached in King Hezekiah's day, here's the power of Micah. King Hezekiah was a good king who did right things. And partly why he did right things is because he listened to Micah's preaching. Isn't that amazing? God used this little guy from nowhere to influence a whole nation. You ever think God can't use the little people? God used Micah. Hezekiah heard his message and repented, and so God relented, and blessing came on God's people as a result of his life. Look at what it says here in Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to Micah. You really don't know much about Micah. In fact, in this day, they probably didn't even consider him a prophet. He was just a little guy from uh, Morasheth. Where's Morasheth? It's a little town, uh, 35 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. It's like this little town in the middle of nowhere. So it's like the kind of town that you think, like, who's going to good come from that town? A prophet's not going to come from there. They're the hicks. They're the backwoods people. Uh, backwoods people, though, that held to the word of God and held to the ways of God. 
And Micah's a little guy that just got up and started to preach. No recorded call. There wasn't any honorary doctorates in his life or any knighting of the, this is my prophet Micah. All Micah had was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Micah chapter 3, verse 8. So Micah preached with only one person's authority, and that was the one that mattered most, God. The Spirit of the living God. And Micah's needed that spirit of the living God because his message wasn't going to be a popular tune. Here's Micah's message. He prophesied the future destruction. Get this, the destruction of Jerusalem. Wait a minute, are those God's chosen people? Yes, they are. The capital of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, and also the destruction of the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. But then he also looked beyond the Destruction. Most prophets just stop there, right? That's why we leave here going like, oh man. But, but Micah's one of those unique ones that look beyond the destruction to the promise of what the destruction would bring, a future glorious era, era and a hope that God was going to bring to his people. Really two things were really dominating Israel at that time. One was the Assyrians. They were building up, building up, and the, God's people were like, oh man, they're going to overtake us. They're going to take us. They were going to overtake them because God designed that to bring them back to their senses. So externally, it was this, this reality of like, the Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are coming. Internally, though, was the real big issue. The Assyrians were building up because the, internally the, the Israelites were standing at attention to God but in, on the outside, but inside they were running away from God. And so God is allowing this to happen because he wanted to bring his people back to a right relationship with him. And on the inside, Israel was becoming known for their idolatry, worshiping anything but God. They were, the rich were pilfering the poor, and extorting the poor. They had deceitful business practices. The community and family life was broken down and, and outwardly it all looked good, but as the rich got richer and the prosperous came, they started forgetting about everybody else, just thinking about who, like we often do. Think about me, think about me, my profit, my gain. It doesn't matter what it takes. I'm gonna stomp on people, I'm gonna step over people. This is gonna be all about me. And finally, as Micah was anointed, God said, enough. God said, enough. The game's over. Picture them playing a game around a table, and you know, the, the whew, game over, people. I can't do this anymore. Why? It's because God's an angry God? No, because he can't watch injustice happen because he's so right, and he's so good, and he's so holy. So God ends the game by tapping Micah on the shoulder. Speak now. They're going to listen. Speak now, they're going to listen. Basically what he says, I can't turn a blind eye on this forever. His heart's aching within him as he sees his people in disarray. Micah, go and preach that this might become right. And in Micah we see themes of God's justice. The wrong will be made right by God himself. We see God's deliverance as as the Secret Service protect the Prime Minister and President to get them where they're going. God is going to protect his people and get them to where they're going ultimately, but not before the punishment comes, because sometimes we need a punishment to learn our lessons. God's faithfulness is going to be a theme in here, like the friend who sticks with you no matter what, thick and thin. God is the ultimate eternal friend who will stick with his people no matter what. He'll never disown them or leave them. God's worthiness is seen in this text. 
As Israelites turn to everything else, we see the worthiness of one person to worship, one, one object of affection, that's God himself. We see God's love as a shepherd cares for his flock, as a young one cares for their puppies, so God cares for his people. As a mother nurses her child, so God cares for his people. We see God's assurance that he has saved them in the past, and he will save them in the present, and he'll deliver them in the future as well. You get a picture where we're going with this? This is the word of the Lord. And there's only two points I have today, breaking it down this morning. Two points. We're going to study this, uh, the prophetic pr pronouncements of God through Micah. Think Shakespeare with a twist, with a God twist. Uh, Micah chapters 1 to 3, God's sin and impend Judah's sin and God's impending doom. Chapters 4 to 5, beyond judgment to deliverance as God leads into new glories. Chapter 6 and 7, judgment, lament, and ultimate restoration. And so we're going to look at this. Mike is a little bit like a 16-year-old learning stick shift. It's a little bit shaky, a little bit, uh, 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 where's he going? But we'll just stick with me. We'll kind of wrestle through this the best we can. Here's the first point you have to get. There's only two points. Here's the first one. God's harsh indignation for sin is overwhelming. God is good and he is loving, but his harsh indignation for sin is overwhelming. In other words, I'm going to say it like this. Sin is no laughing matter. We tend to brush it off and make jokes about it, and it's not that big a deal. To God, every sin is a big deal. Look at the text with me. I already covered verse 1. Here's the verse 2. Here's what Micah stands up to preach. Can you imagine a preacher standing up to preach this? Well, I guess I am doing that right now, but can you imagine you being a preacher standing up to preach this to your people? Look at what he starts with. Hear you, hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. What's he saying? Hey, guys, guys, listen up. I know you're claiming God, but you haven't been listening to God for a long time now. I need you now to, to, to stop playing games, stop looking around, stop drawing on your bulletin, like look up here and listen to me. God has a word, and it's important. Look what it says here. And let the Lord be a witness, Lord God, be a witness against you. God's got a word for you, and it's not going to be an encouraging one off the top. Look at this. God is a witness against you. In other words, God's not making stuff up here. He's, he's a witness. He sits in the, the, the balcony of his holy kingdom, and he's looking over everything. He sees perfectly and rightly, and he sees everything that they've done. They, they think they're fooling God. They can't run and hide from God. They think they do things underground or under the house. And that's not true. Like, God is seeing everything, and he's actually got, got video surveillance of them running from the crime scene. It's one thing for you to be a witness against me, and we're like, oh, I wonder if it's true or not. If God's a witness against us, here's the deal. It's for sure. The Lord from his holy temple, as I said, he's up in his throne room looking over it all, and he's coming out of his place, it says here. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he'll come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. In other words, God is going to come down in the mountains that I think they're so high, he's going to make them low. The valleys, I think they're low, they're going to be equal. He's going to come, and the, the, the injustice is going to make it all right. Remember when you were a kid, and you are in your basement with your friends or your siblings and you're messing around scraps start happening and you start getting a little tension going on and you hear the basement door open and you hear the steps coming down you know it's your dad you know he loves you but you know he's going to bring the hammer right remember that feeling what did you do you ran for the corners pretended everything was all good and this is really what the Israelites should be doing maybe even in our lives maybe we know that God should be coming because there's rampant sin in our hearts that God needs to deal with Again, not because he dislikes you, but because he loves you. He goes on to say the mountains will melt under his 
under him and the valleys will open like wax before him, before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. You ever think God's just wimpy little God? Look at this. When God steps out of his palace, everything crumbles. The mountains melt. The valleys split open. What a picture of God, hey? We picture the Santa Claus God. Oh, come on, come on. I sit on my knee. I'll give you gifts. Here's the God of the Bible. When he comes out, everything goes low. The next few verses, just I want to summarize for you because I could preach five hours in this text, but you don't want that, do you? Basically, the next few verses here, uh, verses uh, two to seven, is his indictment against Samaria. Judah, verses eight to 16, is both are in big trouble. Both should be terrified. Both should be terrified of God. Again, they're revering God, not terrified of, of his evilness, but revering him or knowing his power and his, his delight and what he's doing. Is he's going to come and it says he's going to uncover their foundations. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to come and he's going to strip them naked and so that they can see beyond the veneer smiles, beyond the nice dress, dress clothes, but all the religious rituals. He's going to show what they're really made of and it's not going to be super pretty. It says in the text, it's going to be a day of mourning. I'm supposed to come to church to hear all the good news. A day of mourning is biblical and right. They're supposed to be mourning and lamenting over their sin. We tend to want to ignore all the conviction, right? And we don't want to mourn. God, just, God takes my mourning away. Sometimes God helps us mourn so we can see the fullness of our sin that will truly come back to God. Judah, same verse, second verse, same as the first. He's actually going to embarrass them because without embarrassing them, he's not going to get their attention. John Calvin writes about this text here. He says, such figures of speech symbolize how defenseless we are and how totally unable to resist God we are. For if God should suddenly appear, who could withstand his furor? It's interesting to note as he pronounces this judgment, in Micah's time, the Assyrians would utterly destroy Assyria and deport 10 tribes into historical oblivion. Point, when God says it, he means it. When God wants you to deal with your sin, it's time to deal with your sin. Not yesterday. Not when you feel like it. Not tomorrow, today. Why was he coming after them? That's chapter two. Why was he coming after them in a good way, remember? Why is he coming after them? Chapter two, verse two, here's why he's coming after them. Here's, here's, here's what's really firing up God's heart. Actually, verse one, woe to those who devise wickedness. Woe or judgment to those or start mourning. If you're devising wickedness, start mourning. You know, plan for your funeral, basically, is what he's saying here. Because God is so good, he cannot stand injustice on this earth, especially among his children who claim they're his. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in their power, in their hand. They're all these power, powerful people. Here's what they're doing. They're coveting fields and seizing them. The, the, the rich are taking the fields of the, the poor. They're seizing their fields and they're taking houses away. They oppose a man in his house and his inheritance. They're, they're not thinking about anybody but themselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because against his family I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily. So as they're planning all their evil devices, guess what? God's in the background going, oh yeah, you think you're gonna, you think you're gonna plan all that evil stuff? Well, I'm gonna plan good because I'm gonna take out the evil for the good. Because they're planning to do all these things. God's saying, yeah, but you know what's gonna happen? Like, you're not, you're not gonna actually have these lands. I'm gonna take them from you. You're gonna miss out on your inheritance. 
For that matter, all the preachers who are preaching, look at verse 6, do not preach, thus they preach, that one should preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake you. So they're preaching, you know, when God's saying, I'm coming, the, the pastors of the day are saying, he's not coming, it's just all peace. And he's like, yeah, you want to preach that message? It's going to be harder for you than it is for them. I know it's a little bit intense, but it's just true. And he calls it all out. He calls it all out. Gets in here in chapter, into chapter 2, though, he gives some hope. There's always hope in this. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He's letting them know what he's going to do. And chapter 2, verse 12, but, but in spite of all this, you know what he's going to do? In spite of coming after the wicked... He's going to surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, and gather all the remnant. The remnant is the small few who are actually faithful. He's going to gather them together, set them together like sheep in a fold, like sheep in his pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So it's not just going to be, it's going to be a remnant. It's going to be a lot of people who actually are faithful to God. He's going to open up, opens the breach up before them. And they break through the past the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. And so in the midst of all this, all this call to repentance, call to check your heart, make sure you're operating the way God calls you to operate. He says, and if you do, guess what? I will be with you and I will usher you through all this. You have nothing to worry about. Chapter 3, let me summarize this. It's this way. It's like, and you think it's going to be bad for the people if you're a ruler or a prophet who's not following God, ruler or prophet, it's going to be harder for you. God's not going to hear your prayers. That's good indictment for pastors today. It gives me a little bit of fear and trembling every time I get up to preach to you. I'd love to give you the comfy, cozy message every week, but yet the God's word says that that's Missing the point. So if you're a ruler or a prophet, and you're going to get up and just give the pleasantries and preach peace when God preaches destruction, preaches comfort, and the priests and the prophets in this day, were they're preaching good things as long as their mouths are being fed, as long as they were being satisfied, they were preaching, preaching good things. As soon as they weren't being satisfied, then they were, they were going all over the place. And so it's going to be worse off for them. God's not going to hear their prayers. And actually, there's a special place for them when God comes in times of judgment. Bottom line is this, bottom line is this, God cannot turn a deaf, blind eye or deaf ear, as the leaders were, to the injustices of the world. But yet Micah, look at verse 8, Micah was filled with power, the other rulers and prophets were not filled with power, Micah was filled with power, the spirit of the Lord, to preach the truth with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. It takes a lot of courage to preach the truth today. That can only come from God. Let's just stop for a minute and think about this. It's kind of the first half of the message, but let's stop and apply this in a couple ways in our own hearts. I get it. Some of you are sitting here going like, oh my goodness, I came to church to hear a message on judgment and to reveal my sin. I've been there all week. I understand. Beat read myself as I read this and strive to understand it and strive to think about how my life is doing in relation to the word of God. And yet this is what God calls us to. And he's really calling us to this reality of like, are you truly following God in your life? Are you walking in the ways of the world and living in your sin? We tend to pacify sin. We tend to make it okay. Well, you sin, I sin, we all sin. It's all okay. We tend to look at others' sin and point fingers at them before we point fingers at ourselves. 
And so we talk sin, we like preaching on sin, but we never really get down to sometimes dealing with our own sin. Here's the truth. God cannot turn a blind eye or a deaf ear, not just to the injustice of the world, but to our sin as well. It's like a parent watching their kids walk into getting the wrong friend circles and they're, they were going the right way and now they're starting to dabble with the wrong friends and they get into the wrong things and what kind of parent would stand there and say, it's okay, he's gonna be fine, just let him enjoy himself. What kind of parent would do that? Not a good one. So as all these things are happening and God cannot stand idly by and think about this, the heart of God who's gonna come out of his house and deal with the injustices first in our own hearts but then in the world. It means he's a good God. He cannot sit and let this happen in his people's lives in the land that he created for his own glory. Like Jesus, God sent Jesus for the ultimate justice to die on the cross for our sins. The justice God demanded was our lives. The justice Jesus gave was actually our redemption. God sent Jesus to make justice on this earth, so he calls us to deal with the sin in our own hearts, but to also walk in the justice that he also desires us to walk in. Sin matters, don't mess with God. It's time to take our sin seriously. Here's the topics covered in the first three chapters that we can think about here for a moment this morning together as you think about your own heart. What does this mean for us to take sin seriously? First of all, it means to embrace contentment over covetousness. Contentment is one of those little things that we think is not a big sin, right? There's bigger sins out there. I'm just a little discontent, and I prefer to have that or this, and looking at my neighbor's stuff with envy. And as we read this text, that's the big sin that the Israelites are dealing with, covetousness. I want, so I'm going to get, and I'm going to take, and I'm going to trample over to make sure it happens. How many times have we wanted to trample over for power or position or possessions because we become discontent. So we talk about people, we malign people, we become unethical in how we deal with people inside and outside the church only because we seem to think that we deserve more than we have and we want more than we really have. Contentment comes as we realize that God has given us everything we need and all that we have. And to be satisfied in him and let God take care of all the injustices that we think we have to take care of ourselves. Contentment over covetousness. Contentment never leads to sin. Covetousness does. How about this one? Accept over rejecting God's word. We become good at this, even being a Christian. We like the prophets of the day, twisting and manipulating to always make ourselves look good and get out of the scriptures what we want. And how many many of us really like the straight goods over the feel-good message? How many of us like the conviction over the comfort? How many of us really like to be put in our place instead of elevated to a higher place? And yeah, this is what God is calling us here to. If we're really going to be truly humble believers who actually elevate God over ourselves, it's, it's just acknowledging the scripture is what it is, not trying to twist or manipulate it, not trying to make it what I want to say, but getting under the scriptures, getting under the scriptures. 
on a daily basis? Where are you at with that in your life? Truly embracing the word for what it really is and thanking somebody for pointing out the air of your ways, the air of your theology. How about this one? Advocacy over exploitation. This is a big one. Notice in this text, God despises it. He despises it when we treat others with contempt. Maybe a little deal to us, but it's a big deal to God. Advocacy over exploitation. Here's what the text is teaching us. Just like God cannot stand by and watch injustice, so we as believers ought to not stand by and watch injustice is happening. It shows our hearts are out of disequilibrium with the Lord. You think, what can I do? What can I do? You can do what you can do when injustices happen. Out of my comfort zone to step into that issue. It's like a parent. When I see my kids fighting and justice is happening, I just stand back and watch. I jump in and do what I can to, to solve that and, and help it. Uh, what can we do? We can, be a, we can be a voice for the unborn. The greatest injustice today, one of the greatest is the, is the rampant abortion that's happening. We can be a voice for the unborn the best way we know how. Instead of staying quiet. We stay quiet. God's going to come out of his holy house. And take care of it, yes, but he wants his people to stand up and do what's right. We can advocate for the marginalized. Whether it's a racial marginalization or a different kind of marginalization, special needs people need advocates to to stand up for for the marginalized. We can speak into the injustices of our day and point people to what God says is right and not cower behind the church walls, but get out in front of the church walls and stand with our scriptures held high and say, this is what God actually says. This is part of our job as believers. So many of us want the pastor to do and the church to do, but we are the church. And God's calling us to rise up, to sit quietly and silently as so many people were doing in Israel's day was simply to miss the heart of God, the mandate of God. Last thing is this, is truth over deceit. So much shadiness going on with the Israelites here, the shady business practices and dodging the truth when when called out and aiming to please and all these things. We can just embrace truth because here's the bottom line. If God comes out of his house, I want him to come out of the house to commend me, not to exhort me. Amen? Amen? And all this is not to make you feel guilty or shameful. It's to help you see the reality of your own heart, maybe, and say, God, if you come out of your house today, like you're going to exhort me for sure, but I want a a commendation, not a condemnation. So where does that leave us? It leaves us, God, if this is my heart today, I want to repent. I I see your indignation against sin. I've been treating it too lightly. I need to repent. I need to actually, being a Christian isn't just sitting back and knowing all the right theology. It's living it out. I don't want to sit back and be silent. I want to live it out for the glory of God and help me, God. Strengthen me, encourage me, give me all that I need. But I'm going to today take my sincere, I'm going to live for Jesus starting today. It's clear in this whole book that God has a righteous, holy wrath and indignation against sin and injustice. Do you? Do I? what a God follower is and does because he puts his heart in his people to mimic him. 
Here's the second point. That's the first point. Here's the second point. God will show sweet vindication to his people. This is where the, the, the good news comes. I know, I know the prophets are a lot of bad news, and I know, but, but we need that sometimes. Don't, I don't know about you, but I need to be corrected over and over and over again sometimes. I need to do that, that proverbial slap across the back of the head a few times before I really get the message. You go there with me? Do you usually get it the first time? I don't either. I usually have to brought pretty low before I get it. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me this before? And I'm like, we told you 17 times already. You just didn't get it. It had to be brought low before you get it. This is what I think what God is doing in our lives. But you don't minimize this. It's not just an indignation God has for sin. It's also a vindication for God's people. Vindication is a sweet word. It's a glorious word. It's a word that brings hope and shows that the God of the universe for his people ultimately brings a reality of a better day to come, the promise of something better. Chapter three ends here with the fields being plowed. In other words, the leaders, you think you're gonna do all that and not miss God's judgment? He's gonna plow your fields done. But chapter four opens to look beyond the judgment to the mountains of hope and holiness in the things of God. Look at chapter four, verse one. Here's where it really picks up to give us a little bit of hope. Not a lot of hope in the prophets, a lot of hope in Micah. Look what it says. It shall come to pass. Before whenever this was said, it was destruction. Here's what it's saying now. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In other words, all these things that are great, there's going to be one higher mountain above every mountain. The Mount Everest of the mountains in the spiritual realm is going to be God. And every other mountain is simply going to look like a little foothill compared to the mountain of God. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. They're looking forward here to a better day. Micah would, would live to see this happen when King Hezekiah prayed the prayer of repentance at Micah's, in response to Micah's preaching, the city was delivered for a hundred years because they fell back in the patterns of sin. But they were looking forward. He's showing them that when you repent, there's going to be a better day, a peace-centered day on Zion under the leadership of a new Davidic monarch, King David. Babylon will win, but look beyond the defeat because in the defeat comes the victory. Only the victory comes after the defeat happens. And that's going to be a sweet day. Look at verse 2. And many nations shall come and say the peoples are going to flow. They're going to flock to God after the repentance happens. After you realize the wickedness of your ways and you turn your ways and actually follow God the way God designed it. God's going to do something new. And the people are actually going to not run from God, but they're going to flock to God. They're going to flow to Zion. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Not up to my mountain, not to pilfer somebody else, not to disregard the lowly, but you're going to come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us, get this, his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. This is not just a promise of a new day. This is a better day, the day God designed, the day that God desires for us in our lives, a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. Notice this. He will judge between the peoples and will decide uh, for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn any more war. What he's promising here is peace. Isn't that what we long for? Peace. We want peace. Who doesn't want peace? We all want peace. We want peace in the world. We want peace in our community. We want peace in our church. We want peace in our hearts. Where does it come from? As we hear God's word, we repent of our sin, we turn to God and flock to God and long for God's ways and long for God's will. As we do that, guess what he promises? That we will find peace. 
that you can't find anywhere else. You can't manufacture it. You can't make it happen. No more war. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, a sign of prosperity, a sign of of fullness of mind and heart and belly and rest, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Repentance happened. This is the result. If our land would repent, this would be the result that everyone's trying to manufacture. It can't. It's only as we repent before God, turn from our sin, and run to God for his will and his ways and long for him. This is the result. It goes on to say here in verses 6 to 8, God's going to rescue his people. Look at this. He's going to rescue his people. In that day, declares the Lord. We always see that day as that day. It's like, ooh, that day. In that day, God's coming. In that day, good day for God's people. Good day, glorious day, exciting. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. In other words, all the injustices, all the people who have been pushed back, God's going to raise up. You feel like you've been pushed back in this life. You've got no breaks. Guess what? God's going to make the break of all breaks. He's going to pull you into himself. People treat you bad. God's going to bring you in been afflicted, God's going to come and make all those right. The lame will be made the remnant, the, re, the, the, re, the remnant, which is the good thing, and those who are cast off a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that a sweet promise? He's going to rescue his people. You're faithful, he'll rescue you. It doesn't matter how the world treats you or the world treats you. You're faithful, he's going to rescue you. And he's going to bring you Redemption. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for your daughter of Jerusalem. He's promising redemption. Look at verse 10. There you shall be rescued, then the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Redemption is such a sweet word, isn't it? You ever, you ever found redemption? You've failed, everyone looked down upon you, and then you did something right, and he's redeemed himself, Right? Flunked out of school, and then you bounced back and got that degree. You redeemed yourself. You failed that relationship and came back and made it right, and you redeemed yourself. Here's the reality is that this, though, we can't redeem ourselves. But God promises if we get down low before him, he will redeem us from the pit. That we'll be vindicated before the Lord. And chapter 5 goes in to say here, but the ultimate rescue and redemption is yet to come even beyond that day we look forward to here on earth is coming from the, in the messianic kingdom from Jesus Christ. Micah chapter 5, promises of the coming Messiah. Micah chapter 5, promises of even a greater reign in the Davidic kingdom here on earth, a kingdom, where, kingdom reign where Jesus will come back and he will truly fix this whole thing. The mountains that are so high are going to be made low. The valleys are so low. Are going to, it's going to be equal across the board. And those who know Jesus are going to be brought into his glorious kingdom forever and ever to reign with him for now and forevermore. This is the ultimate hope we have as believers. And the promises here point that are all fulfilled here. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Look where Jesus is going to come from, Bethlehem. The justice of it all, right? The God of justice. 
not going to come from a great nation. He's going to come from Bethlehem, the too little to be among the clans of Judah. For you shall come forth from me, the one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from now, from old and from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until this time when he who is in labor shall be given birth. In other words, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Ultimately, ultimately, their ultimate reality is Jesus Christ is spending eternity with him forever. The remnant will be delivered through Jesus. It's not just hope of a better day here. It's a hope of a better day to come with Jesus. Let me ask you this. If God were to step out of his holy house today and truly do all that he said he's going to do in this book today, would you be among the remnant to get to spend eternity with Jesus? Our hope's not just for a better country and nation and world here, community and church and homes. Our hope is for the better day, the glorious day. Are you ready for that day? Are you going to rejoice when that day comes? Are you going to be running in fear when that day comes? As believers, let's rejoice in that day. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, In the Messianic era, God will ultimately remove all, all false sources of security, including chariots and fortified cities and divination and idols, and he's going to reveal to us our one source of security, Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord's past faithfulness and saving acts because he will act again. Chapter 6, quickly covers some of those judgments again, but then 6 verse 8, and here's, here's what he calls us to, 6 verse 8, said at the beginning, as we understand these things, as we look forward to the coming day, the coming kingdom that God's gonna bring, as we look forward to that, how do we live? How do we live in light of this? It's not just repenting of sin. Anyone can admit their faults. It's now living the power of God to do this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice. The justice heart of God ought to come into our hearts to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It's a mandate for God's people. That's why it's such a powerful verse that we all memorize and it's cross-stitched on pillows and on bookmarks because a true heart after God lives this out. A true repentant heart will actually live for the things of God and not for themselves any longer. And chapter 7 is a sweet chapter. I think it's my favorite of them all, to be honest. As we think about the sweet vindication of the Lord, it starts with, woe is me, a little bit Elijah-ish here in Micah. Well, I'm the only one. I got this hard task, such a hard message. But as he goes on, he laments for the first 11 verses, then he gets into, first 10 verses, and he gets into here today, at the end here, uh, further reality of the vindication of the Lord. for the reality of the blessing and the promises of God that are completely yes in Jesus Christ. Luke says in verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. God's just not here to tear down our lives. God tears us down, only can build us back up in righteousness. He tears down our sin, he can build us back up in righteousness. 
He wants to build us into strong, fortified men and women in the things of God, in the heart of God, in the character of God, in the ways of God. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. And in other words, God is going to extend our boundaries. In that day, will come to pass from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from the Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, but that earth will be desolate because of the inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. And he will shepherd his people with his staff and the flock of his inheritance. He'll dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. They'll graze. In those days will come out of Egypt to show the marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They'll come trembling out of their strongholds. They will see and turn and dread to the Lord their God and their fear shall be upon them. But get this, but who is like you, God, pardoning our iniquity and passing over our transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins in the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from the days of old. In the end, brothers and sisters, in the end, guess what? The promises override the punishment. The hope overrides the despair. The glory overrides the dismal reality that can be sometimes on this earth. In the end, God is a God of justice and he's a God of love and in the end, hope wins. Chapter seven reminds us that our salvation does not come from experts here on earth, verse four, friends, verse five, relatives, verse six, or what family you're born into, it comes from God. And God assures us in chapter seven that, look at this, when I fall down, he will pick me up. When I fall down, he will pick me up. Look at verse eight, rejoice not over me, as when I fall, I shall rise. You're gonna fall down in this life. Stop pretending you're not. Stop trying to be the perfect Christian. You're gonna fall down. But here's the promise. When we fall, when we sin, when we call it to God, he will pick us up. Remember that old commercial? I'm maybe a little older than some of you. Remember that commercial, that little, I've fallen and I can't get up. Remember that? Lifeline, I think it was. Little lady on the floor, I've fallen and I can't. We used to make fun of us because I've fallen and I can't get up. Here's the reality. When we have a lifeline in us called the Holy Spirit, when we fall, we just got to push the lifeline, which is calling out to God, and he will pick us up again. That's the promise. When you think you've outrun the grace of God and you've fallen too far, he will rescue you. When you can't get past that sin that you've been trying to for so long, he will pick you up. When you're spiritually stuck, when you can't hear from God, when all these things be going backwards, when you have fallen and you can't see light in the tunnel, all you have to yell is one word, help me, God. It's three words. The one word is God. God! And he will pick you up. Some of you might need to hear that today. All the sin messages, they've gotten you overwhelmed. Feeling like you're a schmuck. You can't go on. Guess what? God will pick you up when you fall down if you repent. Look at the next part. God is a light in our darkness. Man, it's easy to look at darkness today, right? God will light up my darkness. Also in verse 8, we can all relate to that in this season. Isolation and distancing and church on TV and jobs being up in the air. It feels dark sometimes, doesn't it? It feels like you wake up in the morning, you're waking up in the middle of the night and... 
You ever woke up in the middle of the night and you can't see, everything's out of disarray and you can't see, you're not sure what's going on and what is it need? You need to flip the light on, everything becomes clear again and everything, the perspective becomes normal and God promises to light our darkness. You in darkness today, you in anxiety, maybe a little bit of depression setting in and don't know what to do, like God promises to light our darkness when we call it to him. He'll turn the lights on, he'll fill your soul again, he'll make things clear again, you'll get your equilibrium again, you'll see where you are in relation to him and the world again. God promises to light our darkness. Look what else God promises you. He promises to vindicate me from punishment. He will punish us because he loves us, but he'll also vindicate us. Whenever I punish my kids, whenever I discipline my kids, because I love them, I always go in after and say, not so much anymore, Zach, Zach, but Maya and Nick, you know that daddy loves you, right? I didn't send you to your room forever. Now come back to the table. The pizza is waiting. It's hot. I want to enjoy a meal with you. Because I love you. That's what God does. He disciplines us only to restore us that we can then have sweet fellowship without all of our bad attitudes that we leave them in the room, without all of our sin, leave that there. We can actually have sweet, unadulterated fellowship with God. That's what God promises you in his vindication. It's not just his indication, indignation. It's his vindication that's so sweet. He promises to reveal once again his glory, verse 10. Don't you long to see the glory of God again? Don't you long and hunger for the glory of God? He promises that even the darkness, the darkness can never overtake the glory of the living God. He promises to extend our boundaries in verse 11, and not just physically, maybe extend our influence here on earth, and then and, and more gospel outreach, more impact, more legacy. Verse 14, he promises to care for his people as a shepherd cares, he cares. You think of Psalm 23 in this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leaves me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God will ultimately care for and tenderly watch over his people. He has the compassion of the most tender mother, the strength of the greatest father. This is what he is to his people. He promises, verse 15, he's even gonna do greater things than these. In other words, all the things we've seen God do and all the great acts, mighty acts of God, he's gonna do more. In other words, he's not done yet. Ever got to that place where you figure like, oh, God's done now. I'm not going to see anymore. He's not going to do anymore. God's not done yet. He promises as we, as we turn to him, we get our lives back in line with him. He's going to do more great things, even greater things than these. That's pretty awesome. Don't think that God's done. Don't keep looking in the rear view mirror of all that God's done because if you look in the windshield, you're going to see so much more of what God wants to do. And finally, verse 18 to 20, I just read this. He's never going to stop loving us. I don't get that one, to be honest. My mistakes in my face, my failures. See me right in the back corner of your memory box. Your weakness before you every day, but guess what? God promises never, promises never gonna stop loving us. Bad choices, wrong directions, God's never gonna stop loving us. You turn your back on him, you start running away, he's going he's to bring you back because he loves you so much. 
You can never outrun the love of God. You can never fall too far behind that God forgets about you. You can never stray so far off the path that God won't come and get you. God, through his son Jesus, has loved you enough to die for you on the cross. The cross is a confirmation assurance of his never-ending love. The cross is confirmation assurance that his promises will prevail over his punishment. Who is like God? It's the theme of Micah. Who is like God? He's not like me. Is he like you? He's not like anyone I know. He's like anyone you know who is like God? No one. That's why we love him. That's why we worship him. That's why we gather during pandemics to, to sing and to hear from his word. That's why we live our lives. His way for his glory. Not because we're earning our salvation, because he's already earned it for us in his son. God of justice, God of love, is the God of the Bible, whom we worship today. Let me pray. God, thank you for the book of Micah. I didn't do it justice this morning, I know that. There's so much more in here. I pray, oh God, that as we had a quick overview, God, that you would drive this overview deep into our hearts. God, may we see our sin for what it is. May we repent today, God, as we're sitting here today, if there's, if there's repentance that needs to happen. May it happen today, oh Lord. May you draw us back. May you spare us, God, from the ultimate fullness of punishment. Even as your kids that we know is not gonna be the end, but God, would you protect us from seeing the fullness of the power of God? Come and lay us low. Would we repent before that, Lord, that we could be restored before we get to the bottom? For some here today, maybe for some watching, would you protect them from the ultimate punishment of being away from your presence forever, God? And knowing only the wrath of God, but not the love of God because of the stubborn rebellion to not repent and acknowledge their sin and turn to Jesus and walk in his ways. Oh God, if there's those people here today, would you soften their heart right now, Lord? Help them see the waywardness of their soul and bring them to you, Jesus, saving faith in Jesus Christ through repentance. They would love you and long for your word and walk in your ways. Father, I pray you'd help us be people who walk in justice. Not just talk about it or read about it, but actually live our lives in a right way, in a fair way that wants to see justice in this world. Use us, oh God, I pray. Father, I pray you'd help us hold on to your promises. The enemy wants to kill and steal and destroy and fill our mind with evil thoughts and thoughts of abandonment and thoughts of it's no good and I'm no good. And God, hold us on to, help us hold on to your promises today. There is a greater day coming. It might be here on earth, but we know the greater day, the greatest day is ultimately come when we meet Jesus. No one's gonna take that. No one's gonna steal that. Help us, Lord, live in the promises of God. Partial fulfillment here on earth, fully realized in glory. May you fix our gaze. May you anchor our hearts. May you strengthen our weak knees. May you push us forward to live fully for Jesus. We love you in your holy name. Amen.